But it's certainly, I've never heard that song, but it's certainly true. He's still working on me. And if you are still alive, He is still working on your sanctification because you haven't arrived yet. It's always, if you want to be amazed, get a testimony from somebody who's been in the faith for many, many, many decades. And they will tell you, no matter how old you are, God is still after something in your heart. He doesn't say, all right, well, you're 55 now, I'm going to back up. This lets you kind of glide on out of here. He continues to pursue us and love us in that way. Well, I trust that he will love us through our message this morning. And we are in the book, we are in the New Testament in the book of 2 Corinthians. And we're going to cover quite a few verses this morning, comparatively. Don't get used to it, but um, we're going to cover about 13 verses this morning. We're going to finish chapter 1, venture into chapter 2. And the reason I want to cover such a large chunk of Scripture is because it's all one message. It's all one presentation or argument or explanation, if you will, the Apostle Paul. And this is a passage that I had to read about ten different times just to even figure out, what Paul, what are you saying here to the Corinthians? And my version wasn't doing it, so I looked at about five or six other versions just to try to get an idea and read it and read it and read it. And finally, I think I figured out what Paul was saying in this passage. Have you ever heard the expression, I reserve the right to change my mind? I think it's a good expression and it's a, it's a humble expression because it's, in essence it's saying this is where I stand right now, but I'm not so confident that I would say I would never budge on it. Well, sometimes if we change our minds... Eh, the consequences could be quite harmless. But depending on the way we change them and who we change them with, sometimes it can make things messy. And in essence, that's what our passage is about this morning. It's a situation between the Apostle Paul and the church at Corinth. So let's listen to the words of Paul. We're going to begin in the first chapter, verse 15. Because I was sure of this. I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for your for you to stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad? 
but the one who am I who I have pained. And I wrote as I did, so that when I come, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. Oh. Sorry about that. It was a Bible reading. It was a good word. I hope it's the same one. Verse 4, for I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Bless you, sister. You're forgiven. It's all right. Come on back. You can have a seat. One of the things that makes this passage difficult to track is because Paul begins addressing a problem, I'll call it the original problem, that is of him not visiting like he said he would. But before he explains why he made the decision the way he did, which we don't find out until the end of the book, he starts addressing another problem that you don't, you, I have to tell you about because you've got to kind of read the whole book in order to understand why he brings up the things that he does when he's writing to this church. So the original problem is, in essence, Paul, you said you were going to visit twice and you didn't do it. The problem that he addresses before he addresses the original problem is that what that does is cause an assault on his character. And there's something that keeps popping, will continue to pop up in this book all along. And I've mentioned it before, but there are false teachers, there are false apostles at work and they are constantly nipping away not only at the message that Paul brought to Corinth but they tear away at his very character they bring down not just the message but the messenger and in this case his integrity is being attacked and that's why he starts talking about it he starts defending his integrity and his character before he even gives them the reason that he did not visit them. So it's a matter of, is Paul telling the truth? The same thing happened in the last passage when he starts seemingly out of nowhere talking about, I appeal to my conscience. Everything I did was done in godly sincerity. Why is he talking about his conscience? Because his acts, his motives are being questioned. And here he brings us up because his integrity is being questioned by these false apostles, super apostles even, that we will hear about later in this book. And so here he is, he's brought the gospel into this city of Ludax, so it's recognized as. It's about the least, one of the least places that you would think that the gospel would thrive. And we don't want anything to do with those sinful people. They, they commit all kinds of lewd acts. But the Apostle Paul, wanting to go where the gospel has never been proclaimed before, takes it into this city of Greece, in the uh, uh, southern part of Greece. And miraculously, people believe the message and they are repenting. They're forsaking their sin and they're believing in Christ. And a church is planted in the midst of this dark place of many, many of idol work, worship and just everything that you could imagine that you shouldn't do was happening in this place. He is making lead way 
But whenever the gospel goes out, it's never without enemies. It's never without resistance because behind every human enemy is a spiritual enemy, the big enemy, Satan. Satan is protective of the territory that he has left. The stronghold that he has left before the final defeat comes. And the final sentence. He's already been sentenced, but the final act of judgment. And so wherever the gospel goes, and Apostle Paul is facing this, and it's, it's, it's just attack from every different kind of angle that you can imagine. It's because he's making progress for Christ. It's because people are forsaking their sin. They're loving God more than they love their sin. And Satan does not like us to do that. Because the more we live in the light, the more it lights the path of others and brings conviction on others. Next thing you know, more people are converted and coming to Christ. So Paul, as zealous as he is, as willing as he is to take the gospel wherever he can, wherever God leads him, it is not without resistance. It took a lot for Paul. He risked his life. He made sacrifices, and gladly so, for the love and the privilege to share the gospel. The Corinthians are not doing such a good job at loving him back. New believers. And such it is with ministry. Have you ever poured yourself out, invested yourself, made sacrifices to share the gospel with somebody or maybe to disciple them, to grow them in the faith and you get nothing in return. Or sometimes what you get in return is not nothing, but even worse, trouble. Words are twisted. Actions are misconstrued. And the next thing you know, you're thinking to yourself, all I did was try to help. And now I'm an enemy. Now I'm being slandered for it. My motives are being, are being questioned. And you know what? It's sad and it's painful. And it's also a part of ministry. It's a part of the resistance that happens when we are breaking new ground for the gospel of Christ. And sometimes it hurts. And Paul shares his heart and he shares his suffering and he shares his hurts. With how difficult it can be. But the gospel also says, yes, it's painful, but actually we have much to rejoice when these kind of things happen. Because what it means is you're getting pushback from the enemy. And if you're getting pushback in your ministry, it's because you're probably making headway. And he does not like it. And so in, in the Christian view of life, the pain and the resistance and maybe even getting slandered for things we're innocent over. It all is a part of the battle. And by the way, Satan doesn't play by the rules. Do we really expect Satan to play by the rules? No. He'll do anything. He'll say any lie. He will tempt anybody to do anything he can because he is an enemy of Christ. And now we're his children wanting to spread the light. So perhaps some of us are thinking about the, the, the lack of fruit or maybe even resistance. See it as possibly a good thing in your life that you are making progress for the Lord. So Paul, he's innocent and he proclaims his, innocent, his innocence. But for the Apostle Paul, it's not 
that simple. He can't just say, look, guys, I didn't do that. You're being ridiculous, and I'm just going to move on my way instead of stand here and be falsely accused and listen to this foolishness. He can't just walk away. It's not that simple because it's not just about his character. It's about the message that he shared with the Corinthians. He shared truth with them. And if they start looking at his character and think, well, he's not trustworthy. If I can't even trust him to fulfill the, the, the promise of his word to come and visit us, can I trust what he said about the gospel? Can I trust all the things that he shared with us about Christ? So it's really complicated here. And Paul's concerned that this, these false apostles and this false accusation might even undermine the truths of the gospel and the work of Christ in this young and vulnerable church. These are new converts. And he realizes that, yes, the character is also involved in the message that we speak. And that when people hear it, they're also looking at the person who's speaking it and testing, perhaps, wondering about the, the truthfulness of that individual. The character matters. Paul realizes, I got to straighten this out. So he starts talking about the gospel. What motivation does a person have if I'm going to share a message but not live it? We face this in our day as well. We need to know that for our own lives. If you look at the church today, that if you think about some of the things that have made the headlines, such as in the Catholic Church the last several decades, more and more sexual abuse is being turned up and confronted. And for people that don't know Christ, but may be thinking about heading in that direction, it's just a, it, terrible things happen. It has bad consequences. We've seen it more recently in, even in the conservative evangelical circles where very prominent leaders that have big following, they're falling. They fall in adultery. They fall in greed and all these things. And the world uses the common sense that God gave them and says, you know, you would think that a people that say the problem of the world is sin and Christ came to handle sin would take sin more seriously. If that's the problem of the world, isn't that the challenge that we have as disciples of Christ? And don't we say sin is the problem? Brokenness is the problem. The way out of that is through faith in Christ. By grace. And the, to the degree that we take it serious and to the degree that we believe it and say, I'm forsaking these, I'm trying to forsake it. Sometimes that plays an important part in the witness that we have. I remember when I first became a believer, I was very zealous for the Lord. God had just, he just saved me. All the old hymns about the blinders off my eyes, the chain all, chains off my, my legs and my hands and the burden off my back. That was me. But I wasn't, sanctified yet. I still did what I used to do. And that one of those things was to go out with my drinking buddies. And I'll never forget I was at this party and here I am packing them down, but I'm witnessing to my friends and I'm half inebriated. You guys, y'all need to be born again. And I just, I remember coming home thinking, and of course it's the Holy Spirit thinking, okay, that didn't go over so well. That witness there, but there is something to say for our character. 
And it just gives people, I'm not, it's not all on us. God works. He's sovereign. He can break through anything. But we play a part. And it's not just with the truths that we say. It's the truths that we live. And the more genuinely and sincerely that we live the gospel truths in our lives, I think the more solid footing we will have to share it with others. And God doesn't promise perfection in this world. I'm not making fun of people who have fallen. I've, I have fallen many times. He doesn't promise perfection in this world, but he does promise substantial healing. He does promise substantial fruit when we give him our hearts. We can expect to see these things as a result of the kingdom of righteousness at hand. So Paul gives us this teaching on integrity to defend his character character. He's been accused of who knows what, maybe being a liar and so forth. And if he can't keep his word about something as simple as a visit, can we even trust anything he says? So what does Paul say about his integrity and what can we learn about it? Well, he kind of talks them down, if you will, by giving some background information, by trying to basically say, step back a minute and let's look at the whole picture before you start shooting accusations based on somebody else's input here. Verse 15, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. So let's put this in context. My whole motivation, brothers and sisters in Christ, for even wanting to come at all was because I love you. It's because I wanted to come and benefit you with my presence. I wanted to come with more words of encouragement. I wanted to come and bless you with my prayers as what I try to do wherever I go. So the whole reason that I wanted to come in the first place is because I'm for you, because I love you, because I care for you, not because I'm against you. And I was going to give you a double blessing. I was going to visit you on the way uh, to Macedon and on the way back. So don't lose sight of the fact that we spent time together. Don't lose sight of the fact that we have a vibrant relationship. When I was there, you trusted me and you believed the words. And not only that, you embraced Christ and you saw the results with your own eyes. This is all a fruit of what the Holy Spirit is doing in us. What we had was real and it was reciprocal. I loved you and you loved me back. We ministered to each other. Let's keep all of this in context. You know me. You know me. Consider my heart. And then in verse 17, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? So I'm guessing one of the accusations is he was wishy-washy. He was fickle. Gosh, when somebody's wishy-washy, they don't keep their word or, or it's kind of like, yes, I'm going to do this unless something better comes up. Well, that can be a difficult thing to overcome. So maybe that was part of the accusation. Do you know anybody like that? You're just not, really not sure if you can rely on what they're saying. And Paul's saying, that's not me and that's not my team. None of us are like that. It's not where we're coming from at all. What we say, we say with great intention. But understand that plans, plans may change, plans may be altered, but our heart to you, our loyalty will always speak the truth to you. That will always be there. And it's a blessing for me to serve you. 
Something else to consider in verse 21, he says, And it's God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given his spirit, given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And what he's saying there is don't lose sight of the fact that, you know, it's just not just about me, but you're a part of the team, too. You're a part of what God is doing, too. It's us. God is doing this with us. Not just me. It's just not me trying to convince you. Now it's you convincing others. And it's you experiencing the living God in your hearts, transforming your mind, working its way down into your actions. And He sent me to you for us. So it's a team. We're working together. Consider God has done this for all of us. And then the Apostle Paul drives it even deeper when he says, he ties it into him saying yes or him saying no, into God saying yes and God saying no. And it gets a little bit complicated, but he actually gives a very powerful teaching within his defense or within his own teaching to them. We look at the problem, now we look at the promise. And he says in verse 19, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So here is Paul's bottom line. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I am for you. We are for you. We are being used by Christ. We're inspired by Christ. We're compelled by Christ to do everything we can for you and your walk and your life in Him. We are God's, in essence, we are God's big yes to you. Our ministry to you is God saying yes to you. I am for you. He's for you through us. We live for your good. It's a resounding yes, yes, yes to your joy, to your holiness, to your faith, to your hope, to your peace, to the power in God through you is yes, yes, yes. But in these words, he gives us a little powerful teaching or mini teaching, if you will, about prayer. Well, Paul says, my heart's not divided towards you. I say yes to you because God says yes to you. So in other words, the answer is still yes to what God has promised in you. Now, I think you've probably heard all the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. But what does that mean? And, and if all the promises of God are yes in Christ, how do we live that out? Is it possible to live what we might call a yes in Christ life? How do the promises of Christ apply to us in this way? Well, Christ or God through Christ says yes, yes, yes to you. Based on the promises that he has made to you. And so any time of the day or any time of our walk in Christ, no matter what we're going through in our pilgrimage, we can say, God, do you love me? 
The answer is going to be yes. He's promised that. God, will you forgive me? Yes. God, will you help me overcome the sin in my life? Yes. I will. Will you answer my prayers when they're according to your will? Yes. I will answer your prayers. Will you keep me in the faith, God? Will you help me to change, God? Will you deepen my knowledge and understanding of you, God? And the answer is yes, yes, yes. That is what I am about. So it's a decisive yes to those who believe. Now, here's where Paul takes this in verse 20. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Now it becomes about prayer. And what does amen mean? We use it in prayer all the time. And we may grow up thinking, well, amen means and in conclusion or the end, because we always end our prayer with amen. So it must mean the end. But amen means I agree. And when you hear somebody say amen, they say, I agree. I wholeheartedly, robustly agree in everything that you have just said or everything that I just hear. I strongly affirm this. So sometimes somebody might be in the midst of a prayer and somebody else says yes or amen. Doesn't mean oh, it's time to time to end the prayer. It means oh, I, I hear you. I'm with you in this. Now there are some churches where the preachers thrive on amens from the congregation and won't preach any further unless I can hear a. About once a year I get that every 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 leap year. And this is a leap year. One time I was, uh, and I'm not used to it, as you can tell. Um, one time I was in the middle of preaching a sermon and we had a visitor and they said, Amen! And I lost my place. <laughs> what? So essentially, yes and amen mean the same thing. It's yes, I agree. Amen, I agree. And in Christ, God says, yes, amen. And then back to him, we say, yes, amen. So we are, in, in essence, we're agreeing with each other in our prayer life. We're capitalizing on the promises that he, he has made to us. We're receiving those. We're saying, yes, when we engage with Christ in our time of worship, we engage with Christ in the yeses of his promises to us. So God, in essence, is saying, I will meet every need I promise to you through Christ. And we are saying, in essence, yes, you did. Yes, you are. Yes, you will. In our prayer life. Because the blessings of God come to us only through Christ. That's how the triune God works. God the Father and God the Son are not in competition like some religions would have them to be. They are all one and they glorify one another, each other in their role. Three persons, one Godhead. And we are enriched through the blessings of Christ that come from the Father. So whatever we need to make God our foremost love, that's what God is saying yes to in every area of our hearts and lives. 
If that's what we need to love Him more, if that's what it, we need to worship Him more substantially, the answer is yes, of course He will. Because that's His mission. And that's what He's after to begin with. But God is always at work. It always amazes me how God, even when the Word of God goes out, is, is the Holy Spirit's whispering to us, speaking to us. I mean, I don't ask for a show of hands, but how many people in one way or another have dialogued with the living God just since I began speaking this morning? Or even through our time of worship. The Spirit is very, very active and He's, he's teaching us, He's coaching us, He's discipling us. That's prayer. It's, co- it's communication. It's God saying yes to the things in our lives. There's no telling how He's working here this morning just with what's being spoken already. And sometimes it hurts my feelings, but He'll speak something to you that I didn't even say from the pulpit. It's a whole different text. But it's God's church and it's God's house. And we want God to be glorified in it. So He's keep he's busy keeping His promises to us. John Piper says, prayers like... Now listen to this, it's pretty profound. Prayers like asking for a withdrawal from the account where God has deposited all His promises. There's promises, they're already there. He's already given them to us. We already know what He's about. And so, prayer is just withdrawing these promises that He's saying, yes, yes, yes to Amen, we say, I I agree. Yes, Lord, you're powerful. Yes, you're awesome. Yes, you're good. Yes, you have a plan for my life. Yes, you save sinners. Yes, the gospel is powerful enough to transform a life. Yes, I affirm your greatness. Yes, yes, yes. And of course, the ultimate yes. Paul mentions it here, and we can't escape it as Christians. And that is, all things are for the glory of God. You see it in Scripture from front to back. And he says in verse 20, That is why it is through Him that we utter our Amen to God for His glory. We are saying yes, and you're doing all this, but it's all for you, God. It's all about you, not about us. Our life's mission. In light of all this, we think, a good question perhaps to ask is, As we think about our pilgrimage, as we think about where we are with Christ this morning, are we living in the yes of God's promises? There's such a thing as a yes in prayer. God speaks loudly to us. Are we embracing the things that He would have us to embrace? Withdrawing from the promises, that big bank that you cannot empty. Are there signs in our lives that we're living according to the promise of God? That we're growing deeper, that we're we're longing for more of what He has for us. The interesting thing about this kind of praying and this wrapping our mind around this truth is that once we understand it, it doesn't make us content, it makes us discontent. What I mean by that is, I think John Piper calls it um, uh, holy ambition. It's like a holy restlessness. See, when you realize that God is willing to give us more and more of the things that He desires to establish, you begin to, to get a thirst for it. Now, Scripture tells us to be content in all things 
and in all circumstances. And the Apostle Paul shares with us, I've learned it, I've had lots, and then I've had absolutely nothing. And I've learned to just trust God, to understand God knows best. But mostly that pertains to earthly things. But if, if we're supposed to be content with the way things are, then why, as a model prayer, would Jesus say, pray this way, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But because it has not finished coming. It's the already not yet. There's more there that just, in a sense, hovers over our heads. More of the kingdom of God that he's willing and ready to say yes to and to release. But he uses prayer. We get to interact with God. We have a say. We play a part in this. And he uses prayer to bring it to us. And so there's this restlessness in us. The more we understand this, the more we want, we want more. We're not satisfied with that. And that's okay to want more of God. It's a holy discontentment, if you will, or a holy ambition, a holy dissatisfaction. And we pray for this heartfelt expression. Now, the opposite of that, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The opposite of that is this. The more satisfied we are with the things of this world, the way life is, the less we'll pray. Why? We don't need anything new. We don't want anything to change. I've got the job of my dreams. I got the family of my dreams. I got the truck of my dreams. What else do I need? Life is good. You're not going to find me on my knees if that's my mindset because I don't want change. So the more satisfied we are with how things are, who we are, where things are in the world, the less we will pray and ask for the kingdom. You know, in real life, a small prayer life signifies a small desire for the things of God. Checklist prayer life signifies a checklist relationship with God. So we want to consider this and consider what the kingdom is all about. Consider what place, what's our role, and what is God after in our hearts. And one of the things we learned in Sunday school this morning is our our um, the variety of our backgrounds and and the unique ways that God draws us to Himself, but also, once we are there, uses us. And God is very likely after different things in our hearts for His good and for our good and for His glory. And I pray that the Word of God will just seep in and soak in and bring forth that transformation and that we would it wouldn't be such a terrible sacrifice to give these things up because we see the joy, and the joy is greater than the sacrifice that it takes to get there. Longing for the kingdom of God. And you better believe that God is not finished manifesting His kingdom in this church here this morning. He wants more for all of us. And I pray that we would enter into that season of prayer where we're not satisfied with what we have in Christ, but long and storm the gates of heaven for more and more. And then I want to close with just a demonstration of Paul's patience in um, chapter 2. 
I call God, actually chapter 1 and 2, I call God, verse 23, to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you to stand firm in your faith. So if you're not fickle, Paul, and you're not unreliable, if you're a man of integrity, then can you just tell me why you did not come? Why you didn't keep your word, so to speak? And his answer is this. Look, it was to spare you. I was going your way and I was going to visit to bless you. And the reason I didn't visit was to spare you, to bless you. And the reason I didn't come was because the last time I was there... In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 21, he said, you know, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? See, sin had been confronted in his last visit, in his last letters. He called the sinner out. He's not scared to confront people. Sin is a serious thing. And if it's left unchecked, it only gets worse. It only festers. And so one of the jobs of a disciple is to confront sin, of course, in love and truth. But he says, I've already done that. I already confronted it. And what I don't want to do is show up again and have to discipline you all over again over the same sin. So in essence, what he's doing, either he doesn't know if there's been true repentance, which would be my guess, or maybe he's already heard that they're still working through it. The idea is they're still working through the confrontation. They're, they're still struggling with that. And Paul in his love and care and his patience is saying, I'm giving you space. I'm giving you space. I'm trusting God is working in your life. I brought the truth. I confronted this. And now I'm just going to wait for the Spirit to work and not jump in again too soon with harsh words. Not that he's afraid to do that, but it's awkward when we confront sin, right? I mean, it's tension there. And, it, and that tension remains until somebody gives. And hopefully the person that gives, gives their will to God. Breaks and bends to God's will. So Paul is so patient here. We talked a little bit about this in Sunday school this morning, Galatians. This guy who's so strong-headed and bull-headed and so, so powerful and zealous to follow God, he knows when to back up. He's not always looking for every little sin to call out. He gives him space and he realized that it could just be too much and overwhelming for him to show up again under these circumstances patience and sensitivity and so we have in scripture the visit that never happened why did it never happen because this guy the apostle paul is sensitive and patient and he has discernment there's no case study for this stuff there's no checklist for this stuff we just have to pour our hearts out for god and ask for discernment lord do i need to say something again or do i back off and give grace help me understand the only way we get this is through pressing into God. And that was the decision that the apostle made. Give him time. Give him space. Before calling them out again. So we want to just keep that in mind, right? As we do community together. We want to pray for a shepherd's heart, a discerning heart. Sometimes we need to hammer away and sometimes we need to step away. For the glory of God. So as a kingdom outpost, may we pray for the kingdom to come and for God's will to be done as we exalt His name 
as we edify the saints and as we evangelize the lost. All for the glory of God. Reconciling the world to Himself through us. May God bless the preaching of His Word.